All right, you all can turn to James chapter 1. So, book of James. Um, I had this interesting moment about a month ago when it was proven to me that I am getting old. Officially, I have, I have reached that moment where I'm getting old. I, I pulled a muscle in my neck. I hurt myself pretty bad. Pulled it bad enough where I had to take a leave and put heat on it and lay down. And here's the bad part. I injured my neck while I was taking off my sock. It was, you know, one of these, a dress sock. It's kind of tight. It gets stuck around your heel. And so I reached down and I yanked it and bam, all this pain down my side. It's this injury in my neck. Apparently now I'm going to need to do stretching exercises before I get undressed at night because I am susceptible to sock-related injuries. Now, why did I pull my neck when I took my sock off? Part of it's because I'm getting old, really. Um, But part of it also is because I don't exercise enough. I know my neck is bad. I have problems with my neck. I always have. And so for years, my doctor has been telling me, well, Blake, you need to be lifting weights three times a week, working on your neck so that you will not injure yourself. I I know that I need to do that. He's told me what exercises to do. He's told me how to do them. I know all that I need to do to avoid sock-related injuries. But I don't do it. On a good week, I lift weights twice. On a bad week, not at all. All of my knowledge about how to avoid injury is useless to me if I do not apply it. That's really the big idea this morning. Knowledge that is unapplied is useless. Think about it. All of our failures and shortcomings in life, um, those failures are not due to a lack of knowledge. Most of the time, we know exactly what we need to do. Uh, We fail because we don't apply that knowledge. We don't act on it. That's why we fall short. Knowledge unapplied is useless. Here we are this morning in a Bible church. If Bible churches are known for anything, it is knowledge. Knowledge about the Bible. We have long sermons. We go deep into theology. We memorize scripture. We know the Bible well. And yet, it is not our knowledge about the Bible that makes us a light in this world, is it? No, our, our knowledge about the Bible doesn't do anybody any good. What matters is that we apply our knowledge, that we act on what we know we should do. That's what makes us useful in this world. That's what makes us a light in this world. The essence of true religion, James will say, is that you act on the knowledge you have. Not that you know what to do, but that you do it. That's what makes your religion true, authentic, useful. Sadly, it is very possible for a Bible church to be full of super intelligent people who are spiritually bankrupt. They know the Bible forwards and backwards. They can quote it to you, but they're not making any difference on this planet because they're not living it. They're not applying the knowledge that they have and knowledge unapplied is useless. That's what James is going to challenge us with this morning. That's a big idea that the passage is going to go after. He is going to confront the the tendency that we have to not apply the knowledge that God has given us. James begins with a command. Look with me. Chapter 1, starting in verse 21. He says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So the command is receive the word. That's, if you looked in Greek, that's the part of it that really stands out. That's the big command for the whole passage this morning. Receive the word. 
But what is this word that we're supposed to receive? Well, um, that word in Greek, logos, usually in a context like this, it would mean scripture. It means God's word, this book. But James has something a little, a little more narrow in mind. If you look a little bit later, verse 25, he uses a different phrase to mean the same thing. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, the word that we are to receive is the perfect law, the law that is without fault, the law that leads to freedom to liberty. And James defines that law for us in the second chapter, verse 8. Look there, 2.8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Royal law, really interesting phrase in Greek, literally, the law of the king. That's what the word is. It is the law or commands of the king, who is our king, Jesus Jesus is our king, and so when James talks about the word we are to receive, he is talking about the commands of Jesus. The commands or or standards of righteousness that Jesus taught and modeled during his earthly life, that is what we are to receive. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, where Jesus revealed the true standards of righteousness. That's what James is telling us is the word. That's what we need to receive. And notice James says it's the, the word implanted. It's a really interesting word, implanted. Um, when he says implanted, he's, he's saying that this word is not innate to you. It's not something that you are born with. Not born as a child, knowing God's commands, knowing Jesus's commands. No, at some point in your life, really at the moment that you believe the gospel, God plants his word inside you. He writes his word on your heart. That's in fulfillment of a, a very significant promise made in the Old Testament in a passage in Jeremiah that revealed the new covenant. It's Jeremiah 31. So what God promised um, hundreds of years before Jesus came, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the promise of the new covenant. It was not fulfilled when Jeremiah gave it. This was not true in the Old Testament. Old Testament saints did not have the law written in them like you do. The law was external to them. But the moment that Jesus died on the cross, the new covenant, covenant came into effect. And from that moment on, whenever a person trusts in the gospel, whenever they believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead, God's spirit regenerates them and comes to live inside of them and writes God's word on their hearts. And the significance of that is that you can obey Jesus's commands because they're not external to you. They're inside of you. God's word is living and active inside of you, transforming you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, that's very significant to look at that word implanted because it tells us that if we're going to live out this passage this morning, there is a prerequisite. If you want to obey the book of James, there's a prereq. You got to have the word implanted in you. James assumes you're already a believer. He assumes that you've trusted in the gospel and have God's word living and active inside of you. If you don't, you can't fulfill James. You can't do what James is calling you to do. And so if you are here this morning and you have not yet trusted in the gospel, then forget all the rest that I'm going to say and just focus on this. God doesn't want you to, to worry about applying James. What he wants you to do this morning is just receive a gift. An absolutely free gift, eternal life, God's spirit living inside of you, making you alive now and forever. That's yours for free if you will simply receive it in faith. 
If you will just believe that Jesus really did die for your sins. He, he took your punishment that you deserved upon himself on the cross. He died to pay the penalty of your sins and then rose from the dead, conquering sin and death on your behalf so that you could have eternal life. All you have to do is just believe. The moment that you believe, God gives you eternal life. He regenerates you. His spirit comes to live inside of you. And his spirit writes the law on your heart so that you can obey it. Now you can finally do what God has called you to do. Okay, so James challenges us to, to receive this implanted word, receive the, the commands of Jesus Christ that have been written on our hearts. Now, what does he mean by the word receive? That's kind of actually an unfortunate English translation because when I hear that I need to receive something, I naturally assume you mean I don't have it yet. I need to receive this from you. So you have it, I don't have it, I need to go get it from you. That's not what the Greek means. Remember, this is a word that's already implanted in you. You have it because it's inside of you already. You don't need to go get it. Receive in Greek means to welcome something, to accept it, to submit yourself to it. That's what James is calling us to do. Not to get the word for the first time, but to submit to what it is, to submit to the word. He tells us significantly to look it back at verse 21, in humility receive the word implanted. He qualifies receive with this phrase in humility and humility is so significant in scripture. The basic idea in Greek of humility is a submissive spirit, a teachable spirit. You are willing to believe and surrender to what the word teaches you. James is challenging us this morning when he says receive the word. What he is saying is submit yourself to the teachings of Jesus Christ. That's the big idea, the big command. Submit your lives to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And that involves two things, according to James, two things we saw in these verses. To submit yourself to the teachings of Jesus Christ first means that you turn away from what the word prohibits. You avoid the sins that Jesus told us to avoid. That's right there at the beginning of verse 21, therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Putting aside, the Greek there literally means to, to take off clothing. You are, you are removing dirty clothing from yourself. All filthiness, only used here in the New Testament, it, it refers to vulgarity, to immorality. We are to remove all that is immoral from our lives. Similar thing is said in the next part of that phrase. Uh, remove all that remains of wickedness. Literally in Greek it reads, remove the evil that is so prevalent. I love that phrase. The, the evil that is so prevalent, the sin, the evil that, that characterizes our lives, that characterizes the world we live in, we are to rid ourselves of that. We are to run from all that is evil in our lives and in the world around us. So James isn't here pointing to one sin in particular. It's not one particular sin you need to remove from your life. He's talking about any and every sin that is part of your life. You need to turn away from it. You need to take that off and remove it. That's the first step to living a life that honors God. The first step to surrendering, to submitting to the commands of Christ is to turn away from sin. When I look at that phrase, when I study that phrase and try to apply it to my life, it reminds me of being a kid and going to the pool in my neighborhood. And I loved the pool in my neighborhood, but I hated the cement around it. Because I, I grew up an hour south of here. It is crazy hot in the summer in Houston. And so the cement around the pool would be so hot that it burned my little boy's sensitive feet. Um, and I didn't like the, that pain. And so I would wear my big old tennis shoes to the pool. 
I would wear my big tennis shoes in the pool because I didn't want to get burned by the cement. Now, that works great when you're standing on the cement outside the pool, but as soon as you jump in the water, what happens? Sink right to the bottom. I could not swim across that pool if my life depended on it, if I'm wearing those shoes. So if my goal is to get to the other side of the pool, the first thing I have to do is take the shoes off. And that's what James is talking about. If you want to live the life that honors God, that submits to his word, the first thing you got to do is take that sin off. Remove the evil that has been so prevalent in your life in the past. It's prevalent in the world around you. Run from all of it. So step number one, Turn away, reject, avoid what God's word prohibits. But that in and of itself is not enough. It's important for us to understand. If, if all you do in life is avoid the bad stuff, you're not honoring God. That's not enough. Go back to my pool illustration. My goal is to get to the other side of the pool. If all I do is take my shoes off, I'm not there yet. Now I have to swim. Now I have to head the right direction. So it is in the Christian life. It is not enough just to avoid bad stuff. That does not make you honoring in God's eyes. That's just the first step. You, have, you remove, you avoid the bad stuff so that you can pursue the good stuff. So that you can obey and practice what God commands. And that's the second part of surrendering or submitting to the words of Christ. You turn away from what Christ prohibits and you practice what he commands. You practice that which he commands. That's verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word. Very literal language here. Prove yourself someone who does what the word tells them to do. God's word tells us to do a whole lot of good stuff. A whole lot of good things that God expects us to do. The point here that James is laying out for us is that in God's eyes, it is not enough to just know what you should do. You may know how to love your spouse. You may know how to raise your kid. You may know how to be a good person at work. You may know how to share the gospel. You may know how to use your spiritual gifts. You may know how to give to the church. You may know all of these things, but that doesn't count to God. God doesn't care about that. What he cares about is that you act on it, that you do what it is that you know you should do. That leads James to an interesting conclusion at the end of chapter four. Look at the last verse in chapter four. Chapter four, verse 17. He says, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. You may have all this knowledge, but if you don't act on it, if you do not practice what you know God is calling you to do, then you are walking in sin. Again, it's not enough in life just to avoid the bad stuff. You have to pursue the good stuff. Okay, so the life that honors God, the life that submits to the commands of Jesus Christ is a life that turns away from what Christ prohibits and practices what Christ commands. I'm gonna take a wild guess here. My guess is that none of that surprises any of you. You probably know that God wants you to avoid what God prohibits and practice what God commands. That's not surprising to you. So, so why don't we do that more? Why is it that, that in the course of our lives, we are not more consistently fleeing from sin and practicing the righteousness that God commands? Why are we not obeying this more? Well, simple answer. Because we lack sufficient motivation. That's a basic idea. That's why you don't do things, because you are not sufficiently motivated. You do not want to do them. That's why I don't exercise. Not because I don't know I should exercise, but because I lack sufficient motivation to get me off the couch. So in the spiritual life, the reason we don't obey is not because we don't know we need to obey. It's because we lack sufficient motivation. We do not understand 
the cost of sin and the blessings of obedience. And so after a a really short, brief command, just first verse there, James is gonna spend the bulk of our passage motivating us. The bulk of our passage showing us why obedience is worth it. That's where he's gonna go in the next couple verses. He's going to motivate us. And his motivation begins actually all the way back in the first verse, verse 21, at the very end of it. Why is it that we should receive the word, that we should submit ourselves to the commands of Jesus Christ? Look at the end of verse 21. Because submitting to the commands of Christ is able to save your souls. Submit to the word because it will save your souls. Now, what does that phrase mean? When you hear it in English, what do you think? Save your soul. Hmm. Sounds like getting to heaven, right? Escaping hell, get to heaven. That's what we think of in English, but that's not what it means in Greek. If you just take these words apart and look at each word, it's actually much more literal than that. It's not about heaven or hell. Save in Greek simply means to deliver or to rescue. When you see save or salvation in the Bible, don't assume it means get to heaven. It might, but the basic meaning of the word is just to rescue you, to deliver you from something bad. Save means to deliver, to rescue. And souls, we tend to think of, well, that's my immaterial part. That's the invisible, mystical part of me that comes and, and lives with God in heaven. Well, no, actually, in both Hebrew and Greek, soul just, just, just means you. Soul is you as a person, your life. And so when James says that the word will save your souls, what he's saying is that obedience to the word will rescue your physical life. It will keep you from dying, very literally. That's what he means. Why should you obey the word? Because if you submit to the word of God, it will keep you from dying prematurely. That's actually a common theme that we find throughout scripture. Look at the end of the book of James, a verse that we read for the first time a few weeks ago, chapter five, verse 20, last verse in the book. Only other place where James uses this phrase Chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Save his soul from death. That's not about get him to heaven so he doesn't go to hell. Look just a few verses earlier, verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will restore, heal, save, literally, it's the same word, will save the one who is sick with an illness and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sin, they will be forgiven him. What James wants us to understand is there is a connection between sickness and death and sin. When you sin, even as a believer, the result can be illness that can lead to death. If you practice obedience instead, it will rescue you from dying. It will keep you from a premature death. James is just echoing the Old Testament. You'll find that same phrase, same idea throughout the Old Testament. We looked at this passage a few weeks ago, Ezekiel 18. When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he sins. He shall die for it. For the injustice which he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness which he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. In Hebrew, literally soul. This is not talking about heaven or hell. This is talking about whether you are going to live another day on this planet. If you want to stay alive, you need to do what's right. If you want to die, then you should sin. Same thing David says in the book of Psalms, chapter six, two and four. David is very sick here. He is sick to the point of death. He is on death's door. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord, 
for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. Return, O Lord, rescue, save my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. He's just saying, God, don't let me die today. Please, God, restore my physical life. What James wants us to understand, why should you flee from sin and practice righteousness? Because quite literally, sin can kill you. When you walk in sin, it can kill you. It can put you in the grave early. That is so easy to prove. Think just a few years ago, very famous quarterback by the name of Steve McNair, played for the Tennessee Titans, retires. He's a married man with kids. He takes on a mistress about half his age. Things go south. She shoots and kills him. Sin killed him. That's James' point. When you practice sin, you are in risk of death. Sin can kill you. That is, uh, James is looking at, at really the, one of the most serious consequences that can come from sin in the life of a believer. This is really important. We keep coming back to this. James is not written to unbelievers. It's written to us. Us who have already exercised faith in Christ for believers, sin carries heavy consequences. It can kill us. James wants us to understand that as believers who have have experienced eternal life, we have trusted in the gospel, we have been saved from the penalty of sin, but not the consequences of sin. I hope you can divide those in your mind. I hope you can see the difference. The gospel has saved you from the penalty of sin. You are not going to hell. You will for sure spend eternity with God in heaven because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. He has saved you from the penalty of your sin, but not the natural consequences of your sin. God designed the universe a certain way. And when you fight against that design by giving into sin, there are painful consequences. Sin wreaks havoc on both believers and unbelievers. On any of us who give into sin, it destroys our lives and the lives of those who are near us. Sin wreaks havoc. God saves you from the penalty of your sin, but not the consequences. And so James looks at death, physical death, one of the most serious consequences that could befall us from sin. But that's not the only consequence James wants to point our attention at this morning. He moves on to a second consequence in the next couple verses. Look with me, starting in verse 20. Let's go back to verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. James is warning us, if you walk in sin, if you fail to submit to the the commands of Jesus Christ, the result will be you will be self-deceived. You will live a deluded life, to use the language there of verse 22. And then to drive that point home, he he points us to this metaphor of a mirror. Now, so you know, in the ancient world, mirrors were very rare and of very poor quality. Um, It was very unusual for a person to see themselves in the mirror, so most people had no idea what they looked like. So in the ancient world, they would know what you look like, but not what they themselves look like, because they never see their face. So James pictures this person um, probably walking through the marketplace and and he happens to stumble on one of these very rare mirrors that, that no one but rich people had and he sees himself just for a moment. But then he turns away and immediately forgets what he looked like. His, his interaction, his encounter with that mirror had no lasting impact on his reality, on his perception of himself. Now, um, I, I honestly, I think it's really significant that James 
specifies here that we're talking about a man. Notice that's not a person, it's a man. I think he does that because in general, we men, on average, are are a little less concerned with what we look like in the mirror. I remember a number of years ago, I had a bad haircut. One of those really, really bad haircuts where the really nice lady who's buzzing my hair slipped, literally. She slipped and she just buzzed a line right down the side of my hair. Um, And it, (laughs) wow, looked really bad. And so she thought, well, I'll just even that out. And so she just buzzed a line all all the way around the head. And so I had a chili bowl haircut, really. I I had a chili bowl haircut and I'm a pastor. And so, you know, I have to be in front of people with a chili bowl on my head. But but the good news is I'm a guy and, and I'm a guy who doesn't really pay attention to the mirror. And so I would walk into the bathroom in the morning and I would see myself in the mirror and I would think, man, that is unfortunate. And then I would turn around <laughs> and I would walk out and I would have forgotten about it by the time I got to the door. Literally for the rest of the day, I'm not thinking at all about the state of my hair. In fact, it bothered my wife more than it bothered me. It drove Julie crazy. So finally she sat me down, took out the scissors and fixed it because it was driving her nuts, but not me. Because I would see myself briefly in the mirror and forget about it. The mirror had no lasting impact on me. It did not affect me in any lasting way. It did not improve me in any lasting way. And James is saying, so it is. For the person who hears God's word and does not apply it, the word had no impact on him. It had no lasting effect on him. It did not improve him. What James is saying is that you can read the Bible all day long. You can memorize it until you have it down cover to cover. You can listen to sermons and podcasts till you're blue in the face. But if you don't apply it, then you've just been wasting your time. If all you do is hear the word and don't apply it, it's useless to you. You are simply wasting your time. What matters is that you live it out. What matters is that you practice it in your daily life. Otherwise, you are wasting your time. And worse, James says, you're deluding yourself. You are self-deceived. I think what James is saying here is this guy who is hearing the word, who is listening to the word, who is studying the word, who is memorizing the word, he thinks he's religious. He thinks he's godly. He thinks he's mature. Yeah, just look at all the sermons I'm podcasting. Look at all the scripture I memorized, all the Bible studies I'm in. Of course I'm mature. James says, no, you are not because you're not applying it. You are self-deceived. You are still spiritually bankrupt and immature until you begin to put into practice all the knowledge you are learning. Knowledge is useless unless it's applied. If you don't apply it, it leaves you self-deceived. Now, James, the third piece of motivation he's going to give, James is going to turn and get positive on us. This one was really negative, really sad. He flips the coin and he looks at the good that comes if we will submit ourselves to the commands of Jesus Christ. That's verse 25. Look with me at verse 25. He says, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If you obey the commands of Christ, you receive God's blessing. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be blessed? Kind of a really generic word to us. In scripture, to be blessed by God just means to be under God's favor. God is working in your life so that everything is working for good. Everything is working out well. God is showing his grace to you. And as we look scripturally at what this idea of blessing conveys, basically I think the easiest way to to communicate this is what James is saying, is that if you will obey God, your life will look exactly the opposite of the person who is walking in sin. 
It's actually interesting. If you survey the book of James from the first verse to the last verse and you just list out, list out all the consequences James lists for sin. If you give in to sin as a believer, remember he's writing to believers, this is what will happen to you. Your life will be full of self-deception. You will not be walking and living in reality. You will be useless. Just taking up space on this planet, not doing anybody any good if you're walking in sin. You will experience shame at Christ's judgment. As a believer, when you stand before Jesus Christ in heaven and he evaluates your life, you will feel ashamed because you did not apply his word and live in obedience. You will have conflict with others. You will have strife with other people because of the sin in your life. And finally, you will succumb to illness and premature death. That's what will come into your life if you give in to sin. Now, you you survey the book of James again from the first verse to the last verse, and you ask, what does James tell us will be true of our lives if we obey? What will our lives look like? You'll find it's an exact opposite. One-to-one correspondence, exact opposite. If you obey, then God will fill your life with divine wisdom. You will see truth like God sees truth. You will walk in truth and reality. You will be useful to others. You will make a difference on this planet. Your life will not be a waste if you will obey. You will be rewarded at Christ's judgment. When you see him and he evaluates your life, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, and crown you with honor and glory. You will have peace with other people. You will be a peacemaker in your relationships, and you will have healing and protection over your life. That doesn't mean that you will necessarily live a long life. It means that you will live exactly the life that God wants you to live. Your length of days will not be prematurely shortened because of sin. God will watch over and protect you. I want you just to look at that chart for a moment. Why do we not obey God? Because we lack sufficient motivation. We don't obey God because we don't want to. And so James wants us to take a cold, hard look at that chart and understand, yes, obedience is hard. To turn from sin is hard. I have to give up all these things that are pleasurable. And to practice righteousness, that's hard. I have to sacrifice to do all the things that God commanded. There is a real cost to obedience. And yet, James says, the cost of obedience is nothing compared to the cost of disobedience. The difficulty of obeying God is nothing compared to the pain and suffering that will come into your life and the lives of those you love if you walk in sin. James wants us to understand without doubt, yes, obedience is worth it. It is hard, but it is completely worth it. You want to obey. You really do. So having given us that motivation, having shown us why it is worth submitting our lives to the commands of Jesus Christ, James ends with application. What exactly does that look like? There's a lot of stuff that God commands. What are some particulars that he wants us to focus on? In this time, in this place, James is going to give us three. Three particular things that he wants us to focus on. Look with me at those verses, verses 26 and 27. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So three particular things James wants us to to apply, to focus on. He starts with a, a couple sins to avoid, a couple particularly bad things that he wants us to flee from. The first, verse 26, evil speech. He wants us to bridle our tongue. That verb is very interesting, bridle. That's, that's what you would do to a horse. 
You put a bit in a horse's mouth so that you control it. James wants you to put a bit in your mouth to control your speech, to restrain yourself from saying the, the immoral or selfish or prideful thoughts that rise to your mind. You restrain yourself and you don't give speech to those evil thoughts. So James wants us to do. It's interesting here. Notice he defines that as true religion. If you do not bridle your tongue, if you simply say all the immoral and hurtful and selfish and prideful things that come to your mind, then your religion is worthless. Religion, that's our our devotion to God. Our worship of God is what that word means in Greek. He's saying you can come together and sing songs on Sunday mornings till you're blue in the face, but if you hurt people with your words, then all of your worship is useless to me. It's worthless to me. Because true devotion to God is is shown in how we use our speech. Do we bless people with our speech? Do we honor God with our speech? Now, I think for most of us, if we were to ask ourselves that question, do I honor God with my speech? I don't think it'd be a simple yes or no. If you're like me, you would say, you know, most of the time I do good. Most of the time I really control my speech. I I honor God with my mouth. But every once in a while, the bit slips just, just a little bit and out comes a word that's less than righteous or is hurtful, a little bit selfish, a little bit prideful. What I want us to do this week is I want us to ask ourselves, what are the situations or circumstances or relationships where the bit seems to slip out of your mouth? What are the situations where you struggle to restrain your speech and to honor God with your words? Um, is it when you're tired, when you're stressed? Is there a particular person who you just don't get along well and when you're talking with them, that's when the bit slips? Is it a group of friends that you're with that, that just don't bring out the best in you and you tend to say things that are less than righteous? I want you to ask yourself, when does the bit seem to slip out of my mouth? And then when you see that circumstance coming, And I'm about to walk into a meeting with that guy who I lose it with. Or I'm about to hang out with those friends who I I tend to not act godly with. Whatever the situation is, when you see it coming, turn to the Lord in prayer. Confess to God, God, I struggle in this situation. Please, God, give me strength to hold the bit in my mouth. Give me strength to be slow to speak. If nothing else, give me strength to not speak. If you can at least sit there in silence, you won't sin. That's the great thing about silence can't sin if your mouth is shut. So just pray, God, help me to keep my mouth shut if nothing else. Identify the situations where you struggle to control your speech and pray for God's help when you see that situation coming. That's the first sin that James warns us about, to turn away from, to remove from our lives is evil speech. The second is is the evil influence of the world. That's there at the end of verse 27. He challenges us to, to keep ourselves unstained by the world. What James is saying is that this this sinful, evil world that we live in, um, it can rub off on us. The values and practices that characterize the, the culture that we live in, they can rub off on us and affect us so that we are no longer honoring God. I, I, when I look at this verse, when I study it, what I think of is this pan that I have in my kitchen. It's a stainless steel pan. It's my favorite pan to cook with. It's nice and thick. It really cooks meat well. But it's not coated with Teflon. Okay, so if I use this pan, I have to stay on top of my cooking. I have to keep the food moving around. I have to keep enough oil in there. Otherwise, what's going to happen? Food's going to stick to the bottom of the pan. My chicken's going to burn nasty on the bottom of the pan if I don't pay attention to it. That's what James is calling us to do. Pay attention. Watch with vigilance over your life. Watch with vigilance and look for those places where the world is rubbing off on you. James doesn't want us to remove ourselves from the world. 
The goal here is not to build some walled compound that keeps the world out. Now, if you, if you do that, you can't share the gospel with the world, and then you might as well be dead, because that's the only reason you're here, is to share the gospel with the world. So you need to live in the world and engage with the world, but as you live in this world, you need to be vigilant. You need to be watching carefully, looking for places where the values, the loves, the cares, the concerns, the practices of this world are rubbing off on you and staining you and sticking to you. So go to the Lord in prayer and ask, God, where are, where are the places where the loves, values, and practices of this world are sticking to me and staining me? Look for, for thoughts that are not God's thoughts. Look for speech that is not God's speech. Look for actions that do not line up with God's word. Those are places where the world is sticking to you and ask God to scrub you clean. Ask God to remove those places where the values of this world have sunk into your heart and stained you. Ask God to help you walk in purity and truth. Okay, so two things that we need to remove from our lives, evil speech and the evil influence of this world. Then finally, James tells us what is the good that we need to practice. Remember, it's not enough to avoid bad things. What matters is that you practice what is good. What is the good that James wants us to practice? Right there in verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Widows and orphans in the ancient world were incredibly vulnerable. They have it rough today, but they had it far worse back then. There was no safety net. There's no social care, no social services, no government services for them. Widows could not work. Women couldn't work in the ancient world. So if you don't have a husband uh, looking over you, you're going to starve. Orphans couldn't go to school. There was no free um, school for people in the ancient world. The best hope an orphan had was to become someone's slave so that they would at least have food to eat. James is challenging us to care for the vulnerable, for those who have no hope, for those who cannot care for themselves. James wants us to step into their lives and care for them, both their physical needs and their spiritual needs. Remember, it's, it's not just enough to, to care for their physical needs. All, all you're doing then is making life more comfortable as they prepare for hell. What matters is that you care for their physical needs so that you have an opportunity to share the light of the gospel with them care for their physical and spiritual needs. That's what God calls us to do. And I think it's just so significant how James puts it at the beginning of the verse, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, true religion. You want to live a life of real and authentic religion, a life that honors God. What God cares about is that you care for the vulnerable. That's what it looks like to live a life that honors God. That's the religious life, the life that cares for the vulnerable. I love how Martin Luther put this. The world does not need a definition of religion as much as it needs a demonstration. So God is calling us to do, not tell the world what religion is, but show them what it is. Show them what it is through our care for the vulnerable so that they will listen when we share the gospel later. Earn yourself an opportunity to share the gospel by caring for the needy, by caring for those who cannot help themselves. Now here at Grace Bible Church, we have a number of opportunities for you very practically this week to apply this, to care for the vulnerable right here in our community. I want to share some of these ministries with you in a video here in just a moment. They're going to walk you through the opportunities we have in Grace and in the community to care for the vulnerable. James. 
just calls us, challenges us um, to get involved with the vulnerable. He says, pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, that we should care for and visit the widows and orphans. Now, obviously, he's not just talking about widows and orphans here. What he's talking about is people who are completely susceptible to society. They rely on others to meet their very basic needs. He's telling us, care for the vulnerable. Care for means you dwell among them, you walk among them, you care deeply for them, and you involve your life into their lives. This is pure and undefiled religion. So Christ provides this example in Luke 4. After he says his mission statement, what he does is he heals people, a paralytic, a man with a withered hand, a leper. He um, moves into their life and he heals them. So also he beckons all of us to do the same things. He asks us to find where the passion of your heart meets the hunger of this world. There are so many people in our town who are vulnerable and there are so many organizations that reach out to them. Hi, my name is Leisha Kim, and I'm the Client Services Manager at Hope Pregnancy Center. Hope Pregnancy Center uh, ministers to those who are experiencing a crisis pregnancy, and we do this by sharing God's truth about the sanctity of life. Uh, My name is Brittany Gordon, and uh, my story with Hope is I became pregnant my freshman year in college, and I went to Hope. Um, I took a pregnancy test. It was positive, and um, my husband and I... My boyfriend at the time, now my husband, uh, both went there and we went through um, counseling and talked to people there and uh, we had considered abortion. Um, We were both always against it um, up until the point where I was in the situation. I thought about school and I thought about finances and I thought about our relationship and how that would affect it. We talked to people there and we just had to really think about the decision that we made and it was a a lifetime decision either way and it's going to affect your whole life and after talking to them and after um, getting the first ultrasound at Hope uh, we decided we decided to keep it and um, I would have to say it's the best decision that I've ever made. Hi I'm John Bergeron I'm an adoptive dad I've been married for almost 20 years to my beautiful bride and we have two sons, both of whom are adopted, one from here in the United States in Texas and the other from China. God used this experience in our lives uh, to draw us into a new ministry, and he called us along with four other couples to set up a ministry here at Grace that aids other couples uh, in adoption, foster care, ways to care for the world. And that organization is called Faithful to the Fathers. Faithful to the Fatherless is a ministry that focuses on obviously caring for children who originally didn't have parents. Uh, Those that grew up in orphanages or uh, in the foster care system. One of the things we're doing currently is we have a support group for adoptive and foster parents. Hi, I'm Chris Imperial. This is my wife, Becky. We have uh, five children, and one of those is Noah, who we adopted about three years ago. He was originally from China, was adopted by another family, and uh, it, it didn't work out for them, and so we found out about him and adopted him shortly after that. Some families are called to bring children into their home, but each of those families needs a network of support around them, people to pray for them, to give them a break when they need a break, 
And these are things that people of all ages can do. My name is Carmen Cifuentes, and I am the Assistant Director for SOS Ministries. And SOS is a ministry that reaches out to inner-city youth and their families. Where I, where I was, what happened, and where I'm at now, I don't know what to do. I can't do this on my own. And honestly, the point is that if she wouldn't have reached out and been consistent, I wouldn't be a part of SOS. I wouldn't... Um, I think that's what it takes. It takes somebody for, for somebody to not just reach out once, but to be consistent in it. And because um, that's what God does. He, he just doesn't reach out once and leave you alone. I mean, he's very consistent about what he does. And a lot of it is just word of mouth. You know, kids invite kids. And started out as a teenage ministry. They started bringing their children, their younger brother siblings. And before you know it, we had 100 children in our building. So we started a children's ministry. And then their moms and dads were saying, you know, well, we, you know, kids were like, well, we want our parents to come to Christ. And so then we started a, a women's ministry, a, a men's ministry. A, we started a work program for men that were just out of prison. And the ministry just goes on and on. But we have over 300 volunteers. And this ministry could not happen if it were not for volunteers. So as you can see, there are some amazing organizations in our city who are transforming it with the love of Christ. But for all of us, what would James tell us today? James would say, make yourself available to the widows and orphans, to the vulnerable. What does that look like for us? It looks like we go about our day and we have eyes to see the people around us and to find who is vulnerable and how do I introduce them to the love of Christ. There's a lot of opportunities right here at Grace Bible Church, right here in Bryan College Station, to apply the passage this morning, to care for the vulnerable, right here in the Brazos Valley. Um, let me just walk you back through these really fast, tell you how to find more information about them. We have uh, a few ministries here at the church. Youth Impact reaches out to at-risk youth in our community, helps them to become godly leaders. Faithful to the fatherless, caring for orphans by supporting adoptive parents. This is a great opportunity, a great ministry, because you don't have to do the adoption, although that's, that's great, but you can support the families who do. Lots of practical needs that they have. Next one, Owls, Older, Wiser, Loving Saints. That's our program to care for widows here and widowers at Grace Bible Church. And then a number of partnerships in our community. Aguiland Pregnancy Outreach and Hope Pregnancy Center both care for people experiencing crisis pregnancies, give them practical help, spiritual guidance, and help them to be able to walk through that in a way that honors the Lord. Uh, Brazos Church Pantry provides food to those who are impoverished, uh, elderly, the sick, the disabled. And then finally, SOS Ministries that you heard about, an incredible program down in downtown Bryan that cares for those affected by gang violence, drug abuse, and poverty. Lots of really practical needs. I heard a couple weeks ago, SOS Ministries needed somebody who could teach kids how to repair a bicycle. Because they found out that if a kid knows a practical skill like how to repair a bicycle, it incredibly increases their self-confidence. It gives them hope. It gives them a practical skill. It helps them think about how to fix problems. Incredible spiritual ministry through teaching a kid how to fix a bike. We're still looking for that person. So if you fix bikes really well and have an hour a week to give, you can care for the widow and orphan in our community. 
Lots of practical ways to get involved. Just go to our website. If you click that serve button up at the top and then community outreach, it will take you to a page that lists everything there for you. All these different opportunities, I encourage you just pick one that you can pray for, you can give financially to, or you can go volunteer with. And then as you're going, as you're serving these needs in the community, as Ryan said at the end of that video, I encourage you, just keep your eyes open. Chances are God has probably put someone, a family member, a friend, an acquaintance, somebody at school, somebody at work, into your life who is in need. Look for an opportunity to step up and to meet their needs, both physical and spiritual, because that's what true religion is. That's what matters to God, is that we step out in faith to meet the needs of the vulnerable. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, you have blessed us with all of this knowledge in your word. You have revealed scripture to us. We have it in so many English translations. We are so blessed with knowledge in this country, Lord. But Father, we confess to you that where we tend to fail is in putting that knowledge into practice. Father, we find it difficult to act on what we know to be true. And so, Father, we pray that you would convict us. We pray that your spirit would work on us this week, Lord. I pray that as we go from here, that these would not just be words to us, these would not just be ideas, but that we would live them out and apply them. We pray that you would convict us of sin in our lives, Lord. Show us places where we fall short. Show us sins that, that hold us back from honoring you, Lord, and give us the strength through your spirit to turn away from those sinful things. Give us the strength through your spirit to confess our sins to one another so we can hold one another accountable. Do whatever it takes in our lives, Lord, to break us from sin. And then, Father, I pray that as we, as we leave sin behind, that we would step forward in obedience, that we would practice that which is good, that which delights your heart. And, Father, we thank you that you care for the vulnerable. We thank you that you love and care for the needy. Lord, we confess we are needy. We would, without you, have no hope. And yet you have given the ultimate thing. You gave your own son so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have eternal life. Father, I pray that you would give us your heart for the needy, that just as you have reached out to us in grace, so we would reach out in grace to those less fortunate than ourselves that we would give to them, not just to meet their physical needs, but their spiritual needs as well, Lord. But I pray that we would be sacrificial with the things that are ours. I pray, Father, that if someone is to look at our checkbook or our calendars, that they would see that we love and care for the vulnerable like you do. I pray that we would put this knowledge into practice by sacrificing for their good. I pray, Father, that you would go with us this week that your spirit would lead us and challenge us, that you would do whatever it takes in our lives to bring us further into submission to your word, all for the glory of our King, Jesus Christ. In his glorious name we pray, amen. God bless you guys this week as you seek to live this out.